0: He says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How are we doing this morning? We doing good? We'll see. We'll see. That was really quiet, so I think we'll get better as the morning goes on. I recently um, developed a a new obsession. This has happened to me about twice a year since the age of seven. It doesn't leave me. Um, Something lofty and time-consuming will enter the stratosphere of my imagination, and I won't relent until I've at least tasted a part of it. I've been an action hero, an inventor, an archaeologist, a Disney Channel child star, a sci-fi fantasy writer, a comedian, a pro tennis player, a film composer, a performance artist, a preacher even. And this means a particular form of torture for whoever happens to be closest to me at any given point in my life. I just won't, won't shut up about it. I've been told whatever that thing, whatever it might be. My recent obsession has been cycling. Any cyclers, any bike people out there? Any Peloton people? None of us. <laughs> well, my point that I'm about to say will be proven. Uh, I, I, so I do realize I'm behind the cultural zeitgeist on cycling. I've been told that cycling was the pandemic fad. I was supposed to use that Biden check to get a bike, and then get bored with the whole thing by mid-2022. I get it, we're all climbing now, it's 2023. But a couple of months ago, any climbers out there? Yeah, see, see, exactly. You guys are all gonna be bored with it soon. Hopefully not. A couple of months ago, I noticed something spectacular and very terrifying. My son, Moses, is a runner. The kid hardly ever walks, and he's rarely out of breath. Watching him go, it's like, it's delightful. It's kind of like this awkward waddle thing that he does. And it's also exhausting. I don't think my impending death has ever become more real to me than a couple of months ago when I was chasing him around a park, and I suddenly felt the will to move, leave my body. And I watched him run off without me. And then I hit the park dad pose, fist to hips, forlorn stare, and began to scheme up ways to escape death. I knew it couldn't be running because running is the devil's sport. This is my first theological point of the day. Running is the devil's sport. He didn't fall from heaven, he ran from heaven and there running was invented. So I I couldn't do running. But somehow, three years too late, I landed on cycling. This is a quick tip on how to feed your obsessions this morning and pay close attention because I think that this is where the Spirit might want to take us this morning by way of John's letter. In this digital age, the first step to feeding an obsession, and I think this is what the Spirit wants us to know, is YouTube, YouTube, tried and true. I don't know what you're thinking, YouTube. That's not even the big one right now. But listen, you can Google something if you want a quick answer to a fleeting question. You're like, oh, what's the name of that one celebrity from that one movie? And then you look it up real quick and you get the answer. Boom. TikTok can turn three minutes into three hours if you're sitting there, you know, just dazed by the the screen. And Instagram can help you stalk celebrities and your ex-boyfriend. But only YouTube can change the course of your whole life. I'm exaggerating for dramatic effect kind of mostly, but that algorithm, that YouTube algorithm, it hits. It's good. It's strong. Two to three searches in any topic, and it bleeds into all the other platforms pretty quickly. In one week, my whole digital world was invaded with cycling. One search, cycling, and it was the cycling lexicon, Products and races and teams and brands and bikes and bike lanes and e-bikes and the GCN and Peloton, Tour de France, Lance Armstrong, steroids, how to get steroids, how to get off of steroids, what do steroids do to the body? Anyways, I didn't, I didn't do steroids. After a while, the digital, the digital search began showing up in the physical especially after I bought a bike of my own. I started seeing bikes everywhere. Has this ever happened to you? You like go for a ride in a friend's new car and then you start seeing that car everywhere. Like it didn't exist before, right? And then it's just everywhere. It's on the freeway. It's on this thing. This actually happened to Dan and Alexis. They were looking for a new car. Their old van was just like had shut down. And I told them, oh, you guys should get like uh, this little RAV4 car. It's like kind of cool, you know, it's kind of hip if you want to seem like you know, adventurous and stuff and so you know they prayed about it and with the council of community they're like we're gonna buy the RAV4 with the green on the outside and they're like it's so cool it's so unique and then they got it and they started driving and they're like everybody has the RAV4 with the green on it I'm not special I'm not unique and they blamed me and I was like "Ha ha, ha. I started seeing bikes everywhere I mean they've always been there but my intentional cultivation of this bike obsession changed my whole perspective. The shift in perspective by way of intentionally unraveling an obsessive thread made me wonder, what other obsessions am I feeding? Why those obsessions? How do we feed the right ones and starve the wrong ones? How do we discern between the wrong and the right? This was a bit of an experiment. It's been a while since I tried something new and it's working. In the middle of it all, I noticed a hint of my obsession beginning a downward spiral. I entered this experiment thinking that my awareness of algorithmic patterns and my like holiness as a pastor could keep me from falling prey to an old enemy. But as usual, I underestimated how susceptible I am to the engines of envy, as Dan calls them. Pesky, persistent envy. Because of my searching, I know way too much about bikes now. I know about the good stuff. Turn to your neighbor and say, the good stuff. You're like, we're not doing that. The slick, expensive European stuff that I had to convince myself not to buy against my wife's will because I like staying married. Let me tell you, the good stuff is all over San Diego. The good stuff zooms past me on the silver strand out by Coronado. I get that jolt of jealousy and begin daydreaming about that Chrysig RS Black Widow with, uh, anyways. I'm daydreaming about these things while I'm riding my brand new bike that I just bought. I love that bike, right? But that's just like us, isn't it? It seems a part uh, or core part of the fallen human's function. We fail to realize that the trick of the world is being played on us. It tells us we'll find satisfaction in our own whims. That we'll finally be loved and immortalized when we acquire that thing that is just outside of our reach. Like, like whosoever becomes a pro will not perish, but have eternal life. That's, that's the way of the world. Then we believe the lie that these desires are the makeup of our truest, most authentic selves. Not realizing that it's the world that curates these desires for us in the first place. John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, refutes the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. At any given point in time, you were being told a myriad of stories, stories full of claims of truth and good and satisfaction and power and compassion and love and God and morality. And in John's day, this was no less true. He wrote these letters to remind a community what it meant to be a follower of the way of Jesus as conflicting stories began to spread and cause division and tempt the children of God to return to a mode of dehumanizing, self-gratification, and distraction. See, there are these people going around that had been a part of the Jesus community that were telling like a slightly edited version of the Jesus story. And it was basically, they were basically saying, okay, well, Jesus was not really God. And, And mainly, the main point that they were trying to get across for whatever reason was that he didn't have to die for our sins to be forgiven. There was no sacrifice. Why would he have to sacrifice his life? And this sort of story being introduced into the community of Jesus led to its natural questioning. If Jesus didn't have to sacrifice his life, then why would I have to sacrifice any part of my own? These beliefs were way more easily held than the truth. They played into the self-securing nature of the hearers, even as some wrestled towards their faith. They're like, ah, I want to to believe this story that I heard in the beginning, the one that the disciples and the apostles told us, but that is so attractive. Are you saying I could have Jesus and not give away any part of my life? The way of the world was seeping back into the Christian community. It's hard to put your finger on it. What is the way of the world? John's definition, which he says, the way of the world, he says, do not love the world. And, and hear me out. That does not mean, like, don't be an environmentalist. That doesn't mean, like... Oh, it's litter time. Let's go. This McDonald's bag is going on the side of the freeway because John said, do not love the world. No, that's not it. He defines world for us. He says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, which is to say those things that draw us in because we can touch and taste, those things that we see that draw us toward them, they're like, oh, wow, that's shiny. I want that. And the pride of life, if I can accumulate enough that I just feel secure and proud enough in myself, then I don't need God. It could be all summed up in a phrase. And that phrase is malformed desire. Malformed desire. Let's define desire as it stands. This is just desire. This isn't malformed desire. This is just desire. Dan used a very helpful analogy to paint the difficulty of recognizing sin a couple of weeks back. And I think it works here as well for desire. Asking a human to define and recognize desire is kind of like asking a fish to describe water. Side, side note, does anybody think that water is wet? Is water wet? Begin to argue amongst yourselves. That's not in my notes. I'm just distracted. Uh, listen, <laughs> it's like asking a fish to describe water. We're all swimming in desire. We're all swimming in it. Desire is a part of the fabric of humanity. It's an invisible guiding principle that pushes and pulls us through life. For a person who isn't familiar with the voice of the Father and the teachings of Jesus, desire almost becomes synonymous with God. The culture around us doesn't seem to wrestle with desire in the same way that we followers of Jesus do. Because in the modern age, that that feeling we get is a green light from the universe saying, Take and eat. I feel this, so I'm going to do this. If it's pleasing to the eye, then it must be good. One of my favorite songs. I mean, I don't agree with the worldview, but it's like a a Leon Bridges song, and one of the lines is like, if it feels good, then it must be. And it's like, oh, man, that's, wow, you're such a good singer, but that's directly (laughs) contradicting the way of Jesus. The Greek word, and I listen to it all the time, so I should probably stop listening to it so much. The Greek word for desire appears 38 times in the New Testament. And the connotation happens to be negative, save for, for three instances. And please, hear me on this. Lean in, hear me. This does not mean that desire in itself is negative. I have a bit of trauma from my, 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 young, my younger years of being in church and thinking, like, if I ever want anything, that is a sin. <laughs> like, desire in itself, and I would just go back and forth, like, oh, man, can, should, I, should I, you know... I just, it it leaves you paralyzed. That's not it. That's not it. Desire is a core feature of our humanity, and we'll get into how cultivating desire can play a key role in a consistent and oft impassioned faith life. But this does key us into something interesting about the human heart, something which we should pay attention to. If we cease to question and discern desires, Placing them before God, they can, with time and with a little healthy dose of apathy, uh, become malformed desire. It's that sort of twisted desire that reflects the way of the world. It's a sort of desire that looks more like a tyrant God than something we hold ourselves and experience. John warns us here that there's no room for two gods in our hearts. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father, Is not in them. Jesus says the same when talking about mammon, a product of of malformed human desire. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Malformed desire is an immature and fickle God. The way of the world is to let it, whatever that feeling is, rule you. It plays into the fleeting nature of humanity and changes faces every season, like the fashion industry, you know, like fast fashion. Every single season, you've got to change up your whole style because they're reforming what your desire might be. It causes us to change faces just as often. That's why it's so hard to pin it down. It's immature and fickle, but its influence is strong and deceptive. In this modern age, it seems even more difficult because we have radically redefined our humanity to fit the mold of desire. We say humanity actually equals our desire, not that it is a part of our desire, like this desire that I have is the makeup of who I am. We have radically redefined our humanity. This is the age of the expressive individualist who is chasing their most authentic self. And I'm not just talking about the world out there or pandering to any sort of like culture, war, language. For the most part, this is who we've become in the church as well. Theologian and Historian Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says this about our current social and cultural reality. One side note, again, you should go read that book or a shorter version of it. There's like, it's like kind of a thick and dense book, so I kind of listened to it on audiobook and then popped in to reading it when I really wanted to see it in front of me. But there's a shorter version called Strange New World. Go and get it and read it, and it'll be very interesting for you, you know, seeing the makeup of our culture. But he says this. When it comes to how we think of ourselves, we are all expressive individualists now, and there's no way we can escape from this fact. It is the essence of the world in which we have to live and of which we are a part. Acknowledging this reality is an important foundation for addressing those symptoms of this present age that we find more egregious. And I don't know what egregious means, but it sounds scary. He's a smart guy. We don't get to point the finger and mock the world around us. If you find yourself being judgmental about those people on the other side, ruled by the cultural zeitgeist, tossed about by their own whims, climbing, you're missing John's call. The way to mitigate selfish desire is to become aware of that voice within yourself and then actually lean into the voice and character and story of God instead. Do you hear me? Are you awake? Are you with me? Together through this series, we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a community of love? Say it with me. A community of love. How do we walk together in the way of Jesus? How do we become other-centered, faithful, and sacrificial when we are so baptized in individualism? You know, we can take a moment here and take a deep breath. I don't think God is anxious about our current situation at all. In many ways, the individualistic world we find ourselves in has improved on the ideas that preceded it. This mode of being might be malformed and overgrown, and you know, we've taken our humanity and made it into our desire, but it began as the seed of a thoroughly Christian idea The idea that each of us are made specially, individually, uniquely in the image of God. At one point in history, and in some places still, this idea was up against domineering philosophies of tribalism, classism, racism, sexism, nationalism that dehumanize whole people groups and subcultures. A theology of the Imago day illuminates a deep truth about God and our humanity. We are, all of us, each of us, individually precious and important in the eyes of God. Cared for, provided for, loved. But of course, as the story goes, the humanity within us turns these ideals upside down. We take and eat from this truth what we want and throw out the rest. We want autonomy without responsibility. We want agency to be and do whatever, whoever, whenever, without the guiding hand or proof of a loving God or a loving community. We want the kingdom without the king. The fact is, the image of God that rests on each individual in here this morning, and that image of God is on you whether you're a Christian or not, it doesn't like fall upon you once you give your life to Jesus. We are all made, it's the makeup of our humanity, it's the image of God. It doesn't only dignify us, though it does no less. It dignifies us, does no less. But it also obligates us to care for one another. There's a beauty in this obligation. When we finally hear the compelling call of God to care for the other with our unique gifts, we know we are maturing into his intent for our humanity. This is the sort of of ideology that leads us to care for people that... I mean, in different times in history have been subject to oppression because we get to, as Christians say, they don't deserve that. They are just as touched by God as any of us in this space, regardless of their sex, regardless of their orientation, regardless of the color of their skin, their age from from a fetus to an old elderly person, whatever it might be touched by the image of God. Ronald Rolheiser expounds on this process of maturity where we begin to care for one another, comparing it to parenthood. This is a long quote. You could read it up there, or you could close your eyes and and listen, but I think it's going to help illuminate something for us. Ronald Rolheiser says this. Imagine a typical scenario. A young man and a young woman meet, fall in love, and get married. At this stage of their life, how many of you want to get married in here? You know, you're trying to get married. You know, that's good. That's great. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, At this stage of their lives, they are fairly immature. Their agenda is uh, for their own happiness. And notwithstanding that they are good-hearted and sincere, they are both still selfish with the natural self-centeredness of youth. Then, without really realizing all the implications of this for their lives, they begin to have children. From the moment their first child is born, unless they are very callous human beings, they will, without necessarily wanting to, start to mature. What happens next is that for the next 25 to 50 years, every time they turn around, a number of tiny and not-so-tiny hands will be stretched out, demanding something of them. They will be forced by a clear conscription to think of others beyond themselves. All those years of practice will eventually pay dividends. By the time their children are grown, they will, hopefully, be more mature. And during all those years of having and raising children, they are, in the deep meaning of those terms, consecrated, displaced, and baptized into maturity. My son does this thing when he really wants something. He, he might not even know what it is, but he sees it and looks shiny enough to his little toddler brain. And he reaches up and he goes, I want, I want That's what he says, I want, I want. I'm like, you don't even know what that is. That's a knife, I want, I want. And then I go, here you go. No, I don't, I don't do that, I don't do that. Listen, this process of maturity is also what happens when we begin to believe the words of Jesus instead of malformed desire. When we start to believe that we don't solely belong to ourselves, but also to our brothers and sisters. So we can't do away with our individuality, but we can reorient it. We have the opportunity to partner with God in a process of sanctification, becoming who God intends us to be. And we don't only reorient ourselves towards serving humanity, that's good and that's great, but the primary aim of the follower of Jesus is to turn and to face God to live for the sake of God. And you can do that today. You don't have to like, quit your job and go and give yourself to some foreign land or mission field unless God is asking to you. Some of you just got anxiety right now. He might be asking you to go to Africa tomorrow. I'm just kidding. That's, I used to have that when I was a kid whenever there somebody came and they like were like... I, I, I grew up in church for context. I grew up in a church environment and someone would always come like every other month and they would be like, oh, you know, I just got back from Africa and you need to go to Africa and me as a 12-year-old like, oh, no. <laughs> I have to go to Africa? I'm 12. What are my mom and dad gonna say? How do I get plane tickets? God will take care of me. I will die for the Lord. Uh, as a 12-year-old, um, this, this is what happened. Uh, no, you don't, you don't have to do that. Today, you can find yourself reorienting yourself towards God. Brother Lawrence, is a he was a kitchen worker and a cook, said it this way. Our sanctifi- sanctification, big word, our sanctification does not depend on changing our works, but in doing for God's sake, which we commonly do for our own. There's a great mission field all around you now. It could be as simple as praying for someone this morning. Maybe you like have never prayed for someone. That's, that could be real for a lot of us. You're like, I don't want I don't, to do that. What am I going to do? Walk up to them and say, hey, do you need prayer? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the whole deal. That's the Christian thing. That's the following Jesus thing. Nerve-wracking. But it might be that God is asking you to pray for someone this morning during the gathering. You could be bringing a meal to your community or babysitting for a young couple with a loud and terrifyingly quick two year old. I'm talking about myself and my wife. In this practice of being a self giving individual, we become a part of something much greater and more eternal than the fleeting way of the world. We become Christian. We become Christ like, in that we begin to dismantle the selfish narratives of the world by our actions and redefine love again for the culture that surrounds us. This sort of reformation could only be catalyzed by something radically supernatural. What event What event could catalyze that kind of personal renewal that spreads like wildfire and makes radical individualists into self-sacrificial communal beings? Who, what person could have done this, class? Do you know the person that could have done this? So it's always the answer, number one answer. My, my son says it with a D. D. D-shash. Every night that we pray with him. Here's John reassuring his people of the truth they've come in contact with. This is the story that has remade them. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And now account of his name doesn't mean just like because you said the name or you thought about the name. That means the whole person because your sins have been forgiven by the person, by the work, by the life, by the death, by the resurrection of Jesus Remember this story. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. That's not to say that they're there at the beginning of the world. That's actually saying uh, you you might have actually been there. In the time of your life, these older people might have actually seen Jesus and heard his words. Remember those words, not the story you're being told. Now you know the story. You've been told of Jesus. This is a story that we need to be reminded of constantly because we do forget, because there are so many other stories being told. A quick story, separate story, as we come, come close to an end, I have an, I have an hour left. Um, I don't. When I was in my early 20s, and I'm now in my late 20s, but I think my son has added at least six years onto my life, so I'm like 32 in my head. That's 34, actually. 34 in my head, I'm not good at math. In my early 20s, I was working at a, at a church, singing songs in front of a lot of people, but for whatever reason, I found myself like kind of in this nomadic state where um, I didn't live at home. I wanted to experience kind of getting out there on my own and being brave, and I ended up sleeping on a lot of couches and in my car sometimes. Lots of fun. Uh, but there was a time, a period of time in that season where I was like really, really blessed. And this lady in, um, in our church had a casita in the back of her house. And it was in Point Loma. And it was overlooking the ocean. Oh, it was the best. You guys ever been like up, uh, you know, if you're driving and then you have like the main street and the Niagara, Niagara is right there. And if you go all the way up that street, she lives up there. And there's a big, beautiful tree, and I sometimes walk and stand in the middle of the street and look at the ocean and just, ah, this is fantastic. Um, but I, I'm an artist um, by, by, I don't know if I chose it, but um, sometimes that can lend itself to a certain sort of snobbery about aesthetic and um, I was in, you know, I was in this woman's house, and it was a beautiful, beautiful place and a beautiful home, and God's working on me. But, you know, the room that I stayed in, it was, like, you know, it had, like, a the very flowery sort of, sort of bed with, like, the flower print on it. And then, like, kind of a, a creepy, like, cross on the wall that I love the cross, and I love Jesus, but, like, I don't want it looking at me while I'm sleeping. And... And then on the, on the wall, uh, right in front of the bed, as I would lay down, I could see this decorative lace picture of Psalm 23. And it was there, and it was staring at me all the time. I didn't like it at first, but as I went through the ebbs and flows of life and discovered what it was to be a man, which is pain sometimes, um, I, I experienced that pain, I was like, oh, I have to pay bills, and I have to figure things out, and heartbreak, and, and vocation, and all those things, and I had, some, I had some difficult times, I had some dark times, things I'm still working through, and that room was a blessing to me in many ways, and there were also a lot of tears spilt in that room. Crushing depression and anxiety, moments of panic, and in my own story, something that has kind of followed me in different points, like just dark times. And oftentimes, as I was crying, and I didn't have the strength to open up the Bible and read it, or even to say a prayer, I would sit on that bed, and through, through my tears, I could see that. That scripture on the stupid, decorative, lace picture on the wall. It was like it was speaking to me. The very presence of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Your goodness, your love, your mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'll live in your house forever. And that stupid picture on the wall carried me through dark nights. It was real. It was tactile. It was a reminder of the story of God. When the stories of the world were dominating my very being, crushing me, making me immobile. You know, the ancient world was far more tactile and physical in their religious expression and experience than we are in our modern Western world. We tend to think that our experience of God should live up here in our heads. And in this, we fail to realize that most of what lives in our heads enters through our eyes. It goes from our eyes, to our heads, to our hearts, and then eventually it gets into our souls. We think that we can just keep God in our heads. Like, oh, what I look at doesn't matter. What I listen to doesn't matter that much. I love God. I think I'm going to listen to some Cardi B today all day long. That won't affect my soul at all. No, no shade on Cardi B or whatever. I don't know. But here's, here's what I'm getting at. And here's what I think John might be trying to tell his people. I think... That it's possible to actually curate your desire, to intentionally cultivate your desire, to stir up your affections for God on purpose. When we neglect this intentional seeking and stirring, we essentially neglect the relationship. We're like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to put any reminders of God around my life because I don't know, it's a little too cheesy for me. Like it's a little too live, laugh, love for me to put a scripture somewhere in my house. So I'm not going to do it. But then, I don't know, I needed it. Listen, I, what, what time is it? What time is it right now? Oh, we're almost there. We're almost there. But here's, here's I, need some, I need some advice from you all. Are you guys ready to give me some advice? Oh, yes, yeah, yes, yes. Rick is like, I am ready to give you some advice this morning. He could probably give me some great advice. I'm actually ready for that. Come talk to me after and just lay it on me, Please. I'm going to start crying and everything again. Listen, okay, I have this idea. I have this idea because my life is getting busy. You know, I have a kid. I have a job. I'm an artist. I'm making music, and I'm doing this. I'm teaching, leading worship, and I think that um, it would be beneficial possibly for me to limit my conversation with my wife to just once a week. And hear, hear me out hear me out, if I talk to her just one time a week, we can get everything we need, all our relational stuff in, and then like, you know, an hour, maybe two hours, and then the rest of the week, I focus on what I need to get done. Does anyone think this is a good idea? Show of hands. Just the one guy. (laughs) And, (laughs) And girlfriend is pushing him away, good. Okay, 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 not a good idea, I get it. Okay, but how about we do like this? How about we do like this? How about we do like this? Once a week, I talk to my wife, we make great eye contact, we look at each other and I'm like, I love you so much, this is great, this is amazing, our relationship is so good and maybe work through any troubles that we might have. And, plus, also, when I'm feeling really bad, I'll also go to her. Does anyone think this will be sufficient to sustain our relationship? Show of hands. No? Oh. Okay. All right. Maybe I should have ran this by Dan before I put this in the teaching. Okay. One more thing. One more thing. I got it. I've got it. Once a week, I'll talk to my wife. I'll also go to her when something bad happens. And then once a week on community nights, on Wednesdays, I'll also be like, Hey, it's good to see you. Does anyone think that will be sufficient... To sustain our relationship. No, absolutely not. Right? And so why? And so why do we, in our modern Western world, think that once a week or twice a week, or once a week and twice a week, and when we need something that we don't have, think that that might be sufficient to sustain our relationship with God? And we begin asking the question, God, where are you? And he says, oh, I'm, I've been relegated to Sunday and Wednesday, so I'm there. I'll see you there. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I'm not trying to be condemning, but this is most of our reality. Sometimes this is my reality. Like, I'm getting at myself right now. I'm like, oh, oh, I need, I need to remind myself of God. I need to be asking the Spirit to stir my affections for Jesus because this is the way an impassioned life of faith is actually sustained. It'll sustain me through difficult times. The the words of Psalm 23 on on the wall didn't come to me because I was feeling amazing and so close to God. It sustained me through a dark night of the soul where I was not feeling God whatsoever. And I was going and singing songs on Sunday morning being like, I feel like a liar. These tactile reminders, we need them, however live, laugh, love they might seem. Listen, here's three things, three things, three ways you can do this. Listen, and these are the questions that you might ask yourself. Something visual, what are you looking at in your life? What do you spend your time actually looking at? I know the answer for most of us is going to be our phones. And, you know, I I curated my desire for like cycling on my phone or or on my computer. I was like, I'm going to search in YouTube cycling and my whole world is going to become cycling. Like that's what happens. And I have another confession for you as a worship leader. Like I like worshiping the Lord, but I don't like all worship music. And so like there's another part of it. It's like auditory. What, What are you listening to? What are you listening to? And and a couple of weeks ago, I was like, man, my son, like, never listens to worship music because I don't like listening to worship music that much. Like, I listen to it, and I get into it, but mostly I find myself, like, reading the Bible or, like, praying. Those are the things that kind of make me feel, but I was like, "What, what if my songs were filled, what if my house was filled with songs of faith instead of just, like, Cardi B? I don't listen to Cardi B. It's more like it's like Kendrick Lamar but I put on the clean version for him but I still like my brain still fills in all of the blank spaces so it's not necessarily amazing for my soul what am I looking at are you like watching murder mystery shows all the time you're gonna start to feel kind of murdery maybe (laughs) a little bit or maybe a little scared of that sort of a thing my mother who I love very much is she doesn't watch things like that anymore, but she, you know, for a long time, she would watch things like that. And even as a teenager, I'd be like, why are you watching this? You are so afraid (laughs) already. She's like, don't go outside. You're going to die. You know, that sort of a thing. And I'd be like, maybe you think that because you're always watching stories about people dying all the time. What are you looking at? What are you listening to? How are you engaging your body? This is something very real. Like, a lot of the time, I, I feel just, I feel terrible, in my body. And I mean, not now, but there's a point in my life at which I just felt terrible all the time. And I realized like, I wasn't engaging in things that would sustain me. I was like, I need, I probably should eat a salad and drink some water. That might remind me of the presence of God. What are the tactile ways in which you can do this? You could do something as simple as, and I actually encourage all of you out on the table out there, we have little prayer cards and something that might seem very elementary for us intellectuals is like to take one of those prayer cards put a piece of scotch tape on it and put it by the post of your door so every time you leave the house you see prayer you have a small reminder of God or something across from your bed in your room maybe a lace picture of Psalm 23. Listen whether you're mature in age or faith or young and age in faith, you are susceptible to the strong and loud story of the world. We are not invincible. It has twisted versions of salvation and identity. We need to be reminded of the truths that come to seem elementary to us with time. This is a part of what re- redirects our desires and turns our eyes heavenward. John reminds his community of the true and lasting love, one made present in doing the will of God like Jesus did practicing a will in a way that is formed by the true story of Jesus that had radically reformed their lives. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Malformed desire, it it wears a new mask every day. It's strong for a moment, but eventually it all fades. But if you do the will of God, if you listen to his voice and you can hear him if you can find a way to ask the spirit and then partner with the spirit to cut through the noise of this world, you experience a touch of eternity here and now. It seems that eternity is all wrapped up in being with Jesus. How do you be with Jesus? With becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. Jesus' world was very tactile. It was very like, yo, here it is. This is, this are reminders. Every, like, this room, the, the reason that I love, like, the idea of, like, maybe one day being in a, in a chapel, which, you know, if you're a part of Neighbors and it's your home and community, we kind of pray this, like, secret prayer all the time. We're like, Lord, like, give us just, like, an old chapel. And not just because, you know, it would be cool, but chapels were designed to point everything and remind the hearts of God. Like, the way it's shaped, like, whoosh, Vertical towards heaven, and then the way that the windows or stained glass comes back down to remind us that heaven has come to us. Like every little detail, this is kind of reminds us that kids are small and smelly, and and amazing and adorable and cute. Um, but but you know, you pray that prayer with us, maybe I'm getting in trouble for that. Um, listen, eternity eternity is all wrapped up in his. Sacrificial life, death, and resurrection. To remind yourself and to ask the Spirit to remind you to believe in the person, sacrifice, teachings, and power of Jesus is to receive a gift. Today, this morning, you are forgiven. You know and are known by God. By the word and life of Jesus, you have overcome the selfish desire that sometimes seems so strong. It might be incremental, progressive, wrestled with, being worked out in the course of your whole life, like Paul says, but it's also been given as a gift to you. you, You've been given every gift to live a godly life, like Peter says, as a gift in the finished work of Jesus. We are already there in Jesus and not yet there in our human experience. And it's the not yet there part that becomes difficult to perceive. But do you remember what an intentionally curated desire can do for the perspective? After a while of reminding yourselves, like you go and get a little prayer card out there, you put some scotch tape on it and you put it by the door. Those tactile reminders, they start showing up everywhere. They start showing up everywhere. Maybe the first time you read it, you're like, oh, that's adorable. Then the second time you read it, like, oh, that's pretty good. And then you, you leave your house one more time and you read it and you stop. And maybe it goes like an inch deep into your soul. And then after a month, after a couple of years and you begin to do this all around your life and your whole perspective starts shifting like bicycles to me, they start appearing everywhere. The presence of God and the face of God and the work of God begin showing up in your life because you say, I'm gonna remind myself of the goodness of God even when I don't feel it or see it even when it feels non-existent or invisible to me. I see you God because I'm partnering with you and reminding myself of the goodness that you have poured out on me and I can't do this all by myself so I'm going to constantly pray and ask the spirit Spirit, come remind me of Jesus. Come remind me. Even in the face of your own missteps, difficult times, the love of God that was always present comes into perspective. Love that might not have seemed to exist before the Spirit opened up your eyes. The existence of this kind of love is primarily evidence in God's incarnation. God came to us. Jesus came to us. God himself came to evidence to make known his love for us. We should remind ourselves of this truth. Secondarily, love is evidenced in our care for one another. This is how we know that the love of Jesus has been awakened within us. This is how we know we are becoming a community of love. We lay down our lives for one another as a people that might be naturally individualistic, but in Christ, we are also becoming deeply communal. We, ourselves, become a reminder and a presence of God to one another like, your relationships with other believers and other followers of Jesus become a tactile reminder. That's why, like, if you're not in a community right now, like, find a community within neighbor's church. Like, it will remind you that Jesus lives. And sometimes it might, it might be difficult. It might be like, there's Jesus. But, like, most of the time, most of the time, those people will serve as reminders of the goodness of God. We remind each other of the truth in word and action, and it's this truth. We come to a close. Maybe close your eyes for a minute and hear the story. Take a deep breath. This is the story that you need to remind yourself of. In the face of insurmountable odds, because the draw of the world seems so strong, Jesus came to us He showed us what it was like to live a true humanity, defined by the living God, but defined and led and guided by the Father. He ascended temptation. He ascended and overcame malformed desire. He's overcome the draw of the world and its fleeting desires by his death and resurrection. And now, he calls us, even now, a people uniquely created in the image of God, dysfunctional sometimes, but forgiven. He calls us seen and known by the Father. He calls us to listen to the Spirit of God and be evidence of another world, a world where our deepest desire has purely become presence with a God that loves us, evidence of a world that is being remade, where we'll finally have communion with God face to face.